0: Uh, When in your life do you sing? Think about it. Next seven days, when will you sing? I mean, maybe you're a shower singer, a little T-Swift in the shower. Uh, Maybe uh, you're a car singer, do a little riff on Kanye on the way to work. I don't know. Yeah, at church, of course, we sing. But if you take out shower singing, you take out the car singing, you take out the church singing, when else would you sing? Well, you get happy birthday in a few times a year. But if I had to guess, you probably don't sing much besides those instances that I just rattled off. And I think we would do well to sing a lot more. I mean, other cultures, they sing a lot more than we do as 21st century Americans. For instance, take the sea shanties. You, you got into the Wellerman. Anybody seen the Wellerman? Taken off on the social medias? Well, the Wellerman was written in the 17 and 1800s, and um, it's a genre of songs that are called shanties, and they were sung on ships by sailors, and, and they would do this to establish a rhythm. They would do this to distract from their hard work. They would do it to enliven their tasks. Sea shanties. They sung them all day every day as they were out on the sea. Then you have the English pub songs. They've been singing these things for over a thousand years. And then you take African tribal music, their music goes back as far as their culture can be traced. You you just go on and on. And then you get to 21st century America and you find that we do professionalized music. They sing, we listen. You got privatized music where you just do music alone. And I think we're worse off for it. I found a study on uh, what singing does uh, for, uh, for your neuroscience. And um, here's what they found. They found that music has a profound effect on your emotions, that it induces states of relaxation, which are particularly useful as an antidote to depression, anxiety, and fatigue. I found a, a New York Times writer. Uh, she's, her name is Anna Sublett. And she was just writing about her experience of joining a choir. And she joined this choir because she saw an ad on Facebook that said this, everybody can sing and our choir is here to prove it. No audition, no solos, no commitments, no sheet music, no worries. Singing belongs to everybody. And so what the rest of the article goes on to say is, as she attends week after week after week to be a part of this choir, it's what got her through a dark season in life. And I think Anna Sublet's on something. I think there's a reason why a song sung 200 plus years ago by a bunch of sailors has gone viral during the pandemic. And I think it's because deep down we want to sing. Deep down we No, we need to sing. We know that singing is good for us. We want the joy and the connection that comes with singing. And our joy and connection is on fumes in 2020 and 2021. So I swear, I think our passage can help us tonight. We're in 1 Timothy. This is our third sermon in the series on 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to his young understudy, Timothy, he's a young pastor at the church in Ephesus. And Paul's not there. He knows about the problems that Timothy's having. So he writes a letter to Timothy to help him and to help the church. And so tonight we'll start in verse 12 of chapter one. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example of those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare holding faith and a good conscience. And by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. The word of the Lord. Uh, last time uh, we were together and we were in First Timothy, uh, we saw in verses 3 to 7 of chapter 1 that there are some false teachers that ...that uh, are leaders in this church. And Paul tells Timothy that he's got to do something about them. And so Timothy's got to decide which way he's going to go. Is he going to join the false teachers and secede from Paul? Or is he going to tolerate these false teachers? He's going to see how things play out. That he's going to see the church gradually stray from the gospel... And Paul knows these are the options that are available to Timothy, and he wants to tell him straightforward that these aren't legitimate. That there's a third option, and he gives it to him right there in verse 18. And you see it when he says, wage the good warfare or fight the good fight. And Paul also wants Timothy to know, hey, I'm fighting the good fight. I'm not telling you to do something I'm not already doing. I mean, what what drives you more mad than when someone tells you to do something that they themselves aren't doing? And Paul's saying, I'm in here doing this good fight. And he shows Timothy that there's two parts to it. That's why he's talking in the first person. The first part is about the fight against the internal enemy. And the second part is the external enemy. The first part you see in verses 12 to 17. The external enemy you see in verses 18 to 20. And so Paul in verses 12 to 17, he's highlighting this internal enemy. He's talking about his shadow self in very specific personal terms. You see it there in verse 13. He calls himself a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. Now remember, Paul has been converted. It's a dramatic adult conversion happens in Acts chapter 9. And prior to his conversion, Paul was a Jewish zealot. He had dedicated his whole life to stamping out Christians, to killing them, that he wanted to make sure that this quick growing band of Christians would be extinguished totally from the earth. And if you would ask anyone in the church at the time when Saul, who now is Paul, when Saul was persecuting the church, who is the last person? Who's the last person who had ever joined your church? Who is the last person who Jesus would ever find? And I think that Saul would have got 100% of the votes. Humanly speaking, there's just no hope for Paul. He was just that far gone. And now Paul is standing there. He's not an insolent opponent anymore. He's not a blasphemer anymore. He's not a persecutor of the church anymore. Now he's an apostle. But just because he's not anymore doesn't mean that he's not in touch with who he used to be. In a sense, I think he hated who he used to be, but in another sense, he wasn't ashamed of it. He knows that his life now is an example of what Christ can do with big fat sinners. And that's why Paul calls himself the chief of sinners in this passage. But is this just hyperbole? Is this just some self-deprecation for Paul? Is he scientifically the worst sinner on earth? Well, I don't think it's because God allowed Paul to investigate the sinful records of everyone who was on the planet at that time so that he could compare himself with them to come to the conclusion that he was the chief of sinners. Something else was going on with Paul. What was going on with Paul is that he became vividly aware of his sin to the degree that he had given up on comparisons and he's able to say, I'm the chief of sinners because he couldn't conceive of anyone worse off than him. And so that raises a question for you and for me tonight. How do you become vividly aware of your sin? Well, Paul gives us two tips here. The first one is about getting specific with your sin. You know, Paul, at the beginning, he does say he's the chief of sinners. That's kind of a ge- generic statement. But he's specific in the sense he's, he says, blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. He's saying he's a particular kind of sinner. And when you can be particular, when you can be specific, it's evidence that you're deeply aware of the enemy that is within in fact, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is uh, the creed for us Presbyterians, uh, it says this about specific sin. It says, and I quote, that we ought not to content ourselves with a general repentance, but it is every person's duty to endeavor to repent of their particular sins, particularly. So take Timothy. See, Timothy, he's not a blasphemer. Timothy's not a persecutor. Timothy's not an insolent opponent. Timothy's a church kid. Timothy's mother and grandmother were Christian. Timothy's story is absolutely nothing like Paul's, but that does not mean that he's any less of a sinner than Paul. It does mean that he's going to have to do the hard work that Paul's done and get specific about his sin. And the more clean your background is, the harder it is to be specific about your sin. But if you take 1 Timothy, you take 2 Timothy, you take where we see Timothy in the book of Acts, and you can put together what might be his string. If if Timothy were to write this in the first person, I think he might say something like, I'm timid when I should be bold. I'm needy for affirmation. I struggle to be confrontational when the gospel calls for it. See, for you and me, it's really easy for us to intellectually know we're sinners. We know we're not perfect, and we'd freely admit that. But when you're pressed on your specific sin struggles, can you rattle them off? For instance, are you impatient? If so, in what situations? Are you in loving? If so, with who and under what conditions? Which of the seven deadly sins gets to you? Lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, pride? And when do those raise their heads in your life? So you see, even just pressing in a little bit here, how you can get to a place where the comparison game doesn't matter, when all of a sudden you give up on saying, well, I'm not as big of a sinner as. Well, at least I haven't done So if you can start getting specific, when you can start getting particular, then you're not far from saying, I'm the chief sinner. Well, if that's not enough for you, (laughs) uh, Paul gives us a second tip on getting to the place where you say you're the chief sinner. There towards the end of verse 13, Paul says, I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. See, what Paul is saying is that there was sin that he has committed in the past that he did not consciously choose, that he was unaware of in the time of it. It was unintentional. And the Old Testament recognizes the difference between intentional and unintentional sin in Numbers 15. Jesus on the cross, you know what he said. Luke 23, verse 34. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. See this unintentional sin. These are our trained instincts that have been shaped over years and years of living life. There's a regimen about it. Take a fighter pilot. When a, a threat aircraft is closing in, there's just no time for pilots to reach out for their training manual to know what to do. Rather, they're relying on years of voluntary training to make involuntary decisions in an automatic fashion. And same for us as sin. Take, for instance, the sin of partiality. People rarely walk into a room and say, you know what? I mean, you you could come up with some situations. People rarely walk into a room and say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to find the most beautiful person in the room and talk to them. I mean, if you're single, there's certain occasions that might happen. But partiality isn't just for single folks looking for a date. And when we walk into the room and we find the beautiful person and we don't choose to do it, we usually do it because we have this established perception of what attraction is. And we pursue it unconsciously. So you see, when, when you get specific about your sin. And when you take your unintentional, unconscious sin patterns seriously. Then you can get where Paul got to. You can get to where you can say, I'm the chief of sinners. And in the gospel, that's not altogether a bad thing. In fact, saying I'm the worst is actually a sign of a healthy heart that's been made alive by Jesus. So how about you? Are you able to get to a place with your sin where you can say what Paul said? Have you been able to detect these automatic sinful responses from your past or your presence? Your thoughts, your words, your actions that you're not choosing... That they're involuntary in nature. And they violate God's will. Are are, are you able to get to rattle off your string? Like I read off for Timothy or like Paul reads off for himself in verse 13. Now this isn't to shame you. In fact, this is to help you sing. I mean, mean, look what Paul's doing here. I mean, this getting specific about his sin, this talking about his His unchosen sin is sandwiched in praise. In verse 12, you see it. He says, I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. And then verse 17, he breaks out into song. And he says to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. So, brother and sister, this isn't to shame you. Be assured, having vividness about your sin is absolutely necessary if you want to sing. But something else is necessary, too. See, if all you know is your sin, then you will be driven mad. But if you know something else, if something else is sandwiched in there with your knowledge, your awareness, the vividness of your sin, then you're close to singing. And you see it in verse 14. In verse 14, it says, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. You know, this word picture uh, came up for me. My, my kids are just, they love, uh, they, they love the animals. You know, I think all kids love animals. I mean, animals and pools are like the universal language of children. You know, so you get certain uh, animal kind of documentaries on all the streaming services, but Disney Plus, I mean, they got some good stuff. They got the National Geographic collection. They got the whole library. It's just great animal documentary after great animal documentary. You know, a lot of these are in the rainforest and you know, the rainforest in Africa, that's where the Nile River starts and it flows north into the Mediterranean Sea. And so when the rain comes and it comes hard during flood season, it fills up and it starts flowing north. And you know, when you go north in Africa, you start getting into the desert and you see the pictures of the water start starts flooding into these dry riverbeds. And in the dry riverbeds, sometimes there's debris that's gathered up during the dry season. And when the water shoots in there, that debris just goes away. It's overflowed. And when the water runs through there, you start having vegetation spring up everywhere. You start having animals coming out of the woodwork to drink from the river. And brother and sister, this is the same thing that happens in your life. Grace overflows to you to wipe out the debris of your sin. And it life starts springing up. You see it there in verse 14. You see that the faith and love are the are the is the overflow, of the grace that comes first. I mean, think about the sun. The sun is not darkened because our planet, the earth, is enjoying its light. In fact, the sun could light up 10,000 planets. Jesus, same way. He's this infinite, inexhaustible source of grace that if the whole world were to soak up his grace, he would not lose a drop. There's just no conceivable accumulation of sin in your life. That grace cannot flood out. So do you see with the knowledge of your sin and the reception of grace, it leads you to sing. Because brother and sister, Jesus wants joy for you. He doesn't just want relief. I mean, some of us want relief. We're just tired of the guilt. We're tired of the shame. If we could just get that off our backs, then our life would be normal the pain that we experience day in and day out that pain could just go away, then we could just go back to normal. If we could just get out of hell, we wouldn't experience pain. We'd have relief. And I think Timothy finds himself in that exact same spot. If these false teachers would just go away, then my life sure would be a lot easier. But Paul wants more than just peace and relief for his beloved understudy. He wants Timothy to sing. And he shows him that the gospel is more than just a medication for a cure, that the gospel is a cocktail. The gospel's here to thrill you. It's to bring you joy and to bring you life. And I thought all week, why didn't Paul finish out chapter 1 with verse 17? And what a perfect way to finish it out. He just got done singing and says amen. And gets going on chapter 2. But then he's got 18 to 20 in there. Why does he got that in there? I think my unprofessional opinion is that 18 to 20 are in there because it shows you what happens when you don't want to take the gospel sandwich. It shows you that there's an external threat. You got this internal threat now, you got an external threat. And if you don't approach your life with this pursuit of having be, be, being made aware vividly of your sin and of receiving the overflowing grace of God, then you're going to turn out like these two brothers in verses 18 to 20. Their name there, Hymenaeus and Alexander. And if you want to stay in the dark, if, if you don't want to know how sin affects you and you don't consciously choose it, if you don't want to know ...specifically your sin. And if you don't want to receive grace from Jesus... ...then you'll end up like Hymenaeus and Alexander. See, I think Hymenaeus and Alexander... ...that they can be placed into that false teacher camp... ...that Paul talked about in verses 3 to 7. And what we found out about those false teachers... ...is that they knew their Bibles. What we find out about these false teachers is... ...that they were leaders in their church... They were leaders in the faith community. They were engaging. They were able to get folks into speculative conversations with one another. And aren't those signs that you want to have? You want to be engaged. You want to be a good communicator. You want to be a leader. You want to know your Bible. Well, you can, all those things can be true for you, and you can shipwreck your faith. That's what happened to Hymenaeus and Alexander. And it's only when you see the gospel as what you really need that you won't shipwreck your faith. You've got to be able to see that Jesus loved you so much that he died for you, even though you had nothing to offer him, that you're going to be able to sing. And if Timothy doesn't hold fast to this gospel as the never-ending fount of mercy, and if he doesn't come to grips with this sin, he's sunk and the church at Ephesus is sunk. So this got a lot of relevance for us. You know, we're—I wouldn't say we're coming out of COVID, but I I hope we're on the at least the back half of this thing. And there's a lot to do. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of needs to address. I mean, we got all kinds of kids that's just been sitting there and live stream for all these months that we we ain't even got to see yet, and we got to get to know them. We got parents hanging on by a thread. We got single folks who are lonely like they never thought they could get lonely. We got people deeply concerned about our country, deeply concerned about the political landscape. We're going to have to get used to a new facility and new officers and a new worship time. And we can address all these specifically and lose sight of the main thing, the gospel. So we just got to keep mixing this drink, brother and sister. You gotta keep. You gotta keep praying. God, show me my unintentional sin. God, show me my sin and all its specifics. God, show me your overflowing grace to me, and then drink it down, and then you'll sing. Let's pray. Oh Father, we want to sing, <laughs> and Lord, I pray uh, you would enable us to do so. Lord, I, we. I think of. Uh, The passage that says that you have put a new song in our hearts. Or maybe we need an old song, but it's got a freshness about it. And so, Lord, I, I pray that the gospel would be even fresher to us today than it ever has been. We pray this in your name. Amen.